You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. I am so excited this morning to be sharing a story with you. The story I want to share with you today is the story about the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, which is the official name of the big March on Washington that you probably know about because it is the day that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. shared his I Have a Dream speech, which was a really big deal. And before I tell you something that I learned about this day and about this speech, I want to share with you that I have a very personal connection to this speech as a Mexican immigrant. So I wasn't born in this country, I wasn't raised in this country, but when I came to college and I decided to commit to racial justice, this speech and Dr. King himself is one of the reasons that I am proud to now call myself an American. This dream that Dr. King shared with the United States and with the world is my dream too. And it's really, really important to me. And if you haven't watched it, if you haven't watched the actual speech, I recommend that you do. I don't know if schools show the speech or if they just tell you about Dr. King and about what an important figure he was. But even if you have seen it and you haven't seen it recently, I encourage you to see it again because it is really, really powerful. And the thing that I learned about it that I was fascinated by was that the part of it where he, where he says, I have a dream and that really important part, that was unplanned. Apparently, he had a speech prepared that, you know, like the speech itself is about 17 minutes. And the first part of the speech is what he and his advisors had agreed that he should cover. And it's really important. It's very powerful to watch too because some of the things that he is naming in that part of the speech, like for example, police brutality, he could be naming today. Some of the things that he calls as what we need to do, we still need to do. The dream is unfinished. And it's a very powerful calling us all forward into what could be possible if we are all truly equal, right? So this, this first part of the speech is really powerful. You need to see it, it's, it really is amazing. And he's wrapping it up. He's like, he's starting to say, okay, so go back to Georgia and go back to Alabama. And of course, he was a powerful speaker. He was a preacher, right? And so people are applauding and they can feel that the end is coming. And so Dr. King stops speaking because he stops for the applause because he wants to be heard. So he's waiting for the applause to end as he's wrapping things up. And his friend, Mahalia Jackson, who was a gospel singer who had sung earlier during the march because uh, there was like 14 speakers that day and Dr. King was the last one. And Mahalia Jackson was one of them and she had sung two powerful gospel pieces. And she was very close with Dr. King. 
I understand. And she said during the applause, when he pauses for a minute, she says, she calls out to him, tell them about the dream, Martin. And the people who tell the story say that he turned his head like he heard her. And then he took his script and he set it aside. And then he grabbed the podium. And people say, you knew Dr. King was about to take you to church. Like he was gonna really let it rip and he did. And that's, that's when he started saying, because I have a dream. I have a dream that my children will be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. I have a dream. And I, I, can't, I can't do it justice. That's why you need to watch it because it's so powerful. And this dream that he speaks into, into being more powerfully is such an important moment, not just in our history, but in our current reality. And what I love about it is that he lets the dream come through. It wasn't scripted, it wasn't planned. He just felt it. He felt this possibility of integration and of equality. And he named it in this powerful, powerful way. And it's such a lesson in being, being a, a vehicle, letting, letting something bigger than you use you, like justice, right? And it's so exciting. I mean, I, I just love that moment. And I want to share that with you. And I want to share that, that that's how it happened. And, and the other thought that I want to share with you as I'm wrapping things up is that it's also a lesson for us in creating new dreams. Because for me, like, we have two assignments as a result of this speech. One is to complete the dream, to complete the dream that Dr. King named. But secondly, to create new dreams, to lend ourselves to radical imagination, to what is possible. Because perhaps for us, defunding and abolishing the police is as difficult to imagine as integration was to people who were segregationists back then. Because like back then, Black people couldn't use the same water fountains, couldn't sit at the same counters, couldn't go to the same schools, right? Like, it was impossible for some people back then to imagine that white people and black people could be together. And that's what Dr. King said. Our children can hold hands. We can be together. And that was radical then. So my question now is, what is radical for us? How can we be radical? And how can we let the dream speak through us? So thank you for letting me share my thoughts with you. I look forward to this and many other conversations that we'll have. Before we hear this poem together, I, I want to share just another content warning. Uh, it is a really impactful piece and I suspect will land on all of us with a particular weight and heaviness, but I think it will land or has the possibility of landing on Black and Indigenous and people of color with a different weight and a more visceral response. And so if that is the case, I invite you to uh, turn down the volume or just turn away, um, whatever you need to do to take care of yourself. We will hold one another. We will hold you. We will take a breath together. Let's do that. Let's just take a breath together, being grounded in the space. And let us 
Let us watch and hear these powerful words from H. Adam Harris. Hello, my name is H. Adam Harris. I'm an actor, director, and teacher uh, living in the Twin Cities, just a few blocks down uh, from your uh, church. I know and love many of the people in your congregation, and I'm happy to be here with you today. I wanted to share a poem with you. This poem is called Assume the Position by Jive Poetic. The train came with a police officer on his gun. He shifts his weight against the door. A flashback loads the first time a service weapon was pulled in my face. The second time it made me lay on the ground. The third time it put my hands in the air. The fourth time it pushed me against a wall. The fifth time it told me it was just doing its job. The sixth time it kicked my feet apart. The seventh time it followed me home. The eighth time it grabbed my shirt collar. Read the signs. It's illegal to move between cars. Read the signs. My body knows how Klan rally a cop's gun feels at eye level. The ninth time, the barrel cocked its head. The tenth time, it told me it missed me the last time. It said burning black bodies is a tradition it was raised on. The 11th time the safety and trigger argued through a range of black fiction. I could have been any made up one of us. Ricky or Weebay, Mad Max or Trey. We all look the same under the right racism anyway. The twelfth time, it dared me to swing. The thirteenth time, I thought about it. The fourteenth time, I almost did it. The fifteenth time, there were no cell phones. The sixteenth time, just covered badges. The seventeenth time, it searched me for the broken laws it thought I was. The 18th time, I assumed the position without anything being said. Let's hold a moment of silence together to hold in our hearts and minds those who have been murdered by the police, who have been targeted harassed, violated, threatened by the police. And to hold in this time, those who have survived, who have spoken out, are speaking out, will continue to speak out and call upon this community, upon this country to reimagine, to create a different kind of safety in a different kind of community where all might thrive. Let us just hold this together. Amen. 
Brianna, I'm so glad you're with us this morning and we are ready to hear what you have to share. And I want to invite you to share your message with us this morning. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, First Universalist. I have to be honest with you. When I first heard the call to eliminate the police department back in 2016, I was skeptical and resistant. I mean, I was critical of policing for sure and was out there demanding justice after Jamar Clark and Philando Castile were murdered by local police departments. I'd also thought it was too extreme to completely do away with policing. I mean, what would there be in its place? How will we be safe? I toyed with the idea of adopting other models, such as in Britain, where officers don't carry guns, but thought, well, we have too many guns here in the US for that to work. The NRA makes sure of that. I was intrigued, though, after learning that policing in the US started as slave patrols to return to enslaved black folks to owning whites. And thus, they were always set up to stifle black, brown, and indigenous freedom. I donated to MPD 150, but didn't fully read the report, if I'm honest, and let the idea fade to black. But then spring 2020 happened. On May 6th, I watched a video of Ahmaud Arbery getting shot down in the street in broad daylight by vigilantes in suburban Georgia with no arrests. The next day, I learned that Sean Reed was killed by police in Indianapolis. And on May 12th, Breonna Taylor's murder by police in a midnight no-knock warrant came across my feeds. All this while reeling from the devastation that COVID-19 was wrecking on Black communities, feeling worried for my parents who are immunocompromised and working in the public, it all felt overwhelming. And then Memorial Day 2020, I woke up in the morning after to see, the morning after to see that the next police fatality happened a mile from where I grew up. George Floyd was killed with such dehumanization, intentional murder with no remorse as he and bystanders screamed and begged for Derek Chauvin to get off his neck. Eight minutes and 46 seconds, cold-hearted malice. It sparked global outrage and Minneapolis became the birthplace of racial uprising. Stories came out about the dozens of complaints Officer Derek Chauvin had against him over the years with no accountability. Just this week even, body cam footage, which I can't bear to watch, was released where the officer slash accomplices in his murder let this happen. They stood by and prevented anyone from coming to George Floyd's rescue. The lack of accountability is so clear and so thick. The officers knew their loyalty lied with their fellow officers and not with the man dying on the street. And Officer Thal managed to justify his murder as a consequence of drug use. He tells onlookers, this is why you don't do drugs, kids. So how much is a black life worth? Apparently it's worth a $20 counterfeit bill. So folks, I am no longer in belief that police reform is possible. The MPD 150 report documents countless instances of police corruption and related attempts at reforming the Minneapolis Police Department since it was established in 1857. Citizen review boards, trainings, attempts at community policing have all fallen short with significant inability to hold officers accountable from criminalizing black, brown, and indigenous, queer, and poor communities. Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, Ava DuVernay's 13th, and Brian Stevenson's Equal Justice Initiative all make it clear that mass incarceration is modern day slavery, full stop. One in three black men will be incarcerated in his lifetime Black women are incarcerated at twice the rate of white women. Due to intersections of patriarchy, anti-blackness, misogyny, and queer phobia, black gender expansive folks are disproportionately discriminated against across all levels, including being overly criminalized. 
we cannot end mass incarceration with the current policing system that we have. And the idea that police keep us safe, to me, is laughable. There is no inverse correlation between the number of officers and crime rates, meaning having more officers does not relate to less crime. But there is a strong correlation between the number of officers and the size of a Black population. The larger the Black community, the greater number of officers in over-policing. Contrary to common rhetoric, I have never felt safe with a police officer around. Hanging out in the 90s and early 2000s as a teenager and in my 20s in downtown Minneapolis, the police would come and usher us out on horseback, no less, with the vivid call to overseers. At age 21, I was thrown on the hood of a police car and I weighed all of 120 pounds after leaving a nightclub in St. Paul one night. And this is nothing compared to what many black folks face so regularly. Their presence put me on edge, on guard, and I'm worried that if I or the other black folks I'm with make a wrong move, the police will turn on us. So we need to radically imagine something different. This summer, black women and queer activists took to the streets demanding for transformation. I listened to their calls, including our own first universalist, Lena Gardner, to defund the police, and I am leaning towards the abolitionist movement. As radical black feminist, Charlene Carruthers writes, Reforms are changes that are not structural, nor do they alter power relations in favor of marginalized and oppressed groups. Transformation is not only possible, but absolutely necessary for continued survival of all people and the planet. So ask yourself, who are the systems we have serving? And at what cost to those without dominant identities and privilege? Who is harmed by holding up the status quo? And what lies have we been told about safety, policing, and blackness? Again, Charlene Carruthers says, there's no struggle without discomfort. Movement building is messy and trying and tests our facet of who we are, and yet it is beautiful. It is long-term work, it is deep spirit work. And I believe it is in our power at First Year to demand transformational justice. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Brianna. We have received your call. You have put a charge out there, a project, a struggle, and we have received that. And as a whole congregation, it's true that we haven't yet set a course as it relates to reimagining policing. But many of the communities within the larger community of First Universalist have been working for months and for years to end policing as we know it and to end police brutality. And part of our work this year as a community of faith, as a congregation, will be to determine how we can act on our faith to support a deep and profound reimagining of safety and policing itself. And we can do this. We can do this because we are a religious people of radical imagination. That is in the origins of our faith. Our Unitarian ancestors, after careful study and thoughtful analysis of the Bible, they saw evidence of one God, one source of love, one spirit of life, one unifying energy, and they understood Jesus as a human being, as an ethical teacher, as one who worked with those who were seen as expendable or discarded or rejected. He found his power and strength in ministry with those at the edges of the empire. And so the Unitarian said, it's not a trinity, it's a unity, radical reimagining of Christianity. Our Universalist ancestors took a good hard look at the Bible and a good hard look at the teachings of Jesus and what they saw over and over and over again was God being described as love. 
and they could not conceive of a punitive or violent God that would damn anyone to hell. Our universalist ancestors imagined God, or the spirit of life, use the language that works for you, as possessing this entirely different kind of love than was being presented in other Christian traditions. They imagined this love that was not conditional, it was not contingent on behavior or contingent on a confession of faith. They imagined a love that was not just for some, and then no one else got any of that love. They imagined this love that was wildly inclusive, that held everyone. Our universalist ancestors trusted that people could and would be changed if they were embraced by such a radical love, instead of being threatened with hellfire or damnation or brimstone and punishment. These early universalists, and to this day, imagine a circle or a sphere or a container of love and care that holds everyone and everything and asks us to be accountable to care for that whole of creation. In other words, nothing was outside of God's love, of that spirit of life and its embrace. Each child born was a gift to the universe, was a grandmother's prayers or a grandfather's dreamings, was the breath of the ancestors, the spirit of God. The universalists bet everything. They pushed their whole stack of chips in on the bet that God was love and that God wanted human beings to love the hell out of the world. This is radical imagination and this is our heritage and it is hard, hard work. Though our heritage is full of this radical imagination, our religious institutions and leaders and within Unitarian Universalism has, have often maintained a harmful status quo. In other words, we've often quoted Dr. Martin Luther King and the dream speech and that vision. And at the same time, we've been complicit in perpetuating a nightmare by our actions and inactions. As Julika reminded us in that story, in 1963, Dr. King and so many others had been talking about the history of police brutality that had been, was ongoing, and still continues to this day. Six decades later, that same call to end police brutality is still going out, despite countless reforms, countless cultural awareness trainings, countless efforts to create change. Right now, as Adrian Marie Brown says, we are in an imagination battle. We are in the middle of an imagination battle. She goes on to say, Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown and Renisha McBride and so many others are dead because in some white imagination, they were dangerous. And that imagination is so respected by those who kill based on an imagined radicalized fear of black people that those who kill are rarely held accountable. So we are in an imagination battle. We are in an imagination battle right now. The insidious imagination of white supremacy eats away at our very souls. It distorts reality. It ruptures relationships in the human family. And it is still the foundation upon which this country was founded. Anti-blackness, white supremacy. It is the insidious imagination of white supremacy that speaks of reforms, that speaks of tweaks and adjustments and minor changes to policing. 
when the system itself is doing exactly what it was designed to do. It is doing what it was designed to do with the tacit consent of white America as it puts its knee on the neck of black and indigenous and people of color. And so today, the fight against police brutality sounds like abolish the police, which means simply abolish, get rid of the system, the broken system we have. Today, the fight against police brutality sounds like defund the police, which means defunding the current system as it exists and then resourcing other essential human services and letting communities determine how to best meet the needs they have. We are in a moment where our faith is calling us to a profound reimagining of everything. This mess we're in, the violence of supremacy thinking, the racial hierarchies that separate us one from another, the misogyny that is still so rampant, the capitalism that extracts from the earth and human without and human beings without limit, those things are not sustainable. And so I wanna say again, Brianna, we hear you, we heard you, and you are asking us to be true to our faith, to draw on that radical imagination that is at the center of our faith and to reimagine policing, to reimagine what makes a community safe, to imagine that it might be opportunity and stable housing and jobs and a living wage and healthcare that are the things that actually make us safe. Friends, the guiding image of our faith, the image from the beginning, the image that we use now is that of a circle. The sense that we are all held by that embrace of life, of love, of God, everyone, everything is in that circle. And yet, white supremacy and police brutality have torn the circles in our communities and in our country. And so our spiritual work is deep reimagining and to build a community that can serve everyone. We have work to do. We have conversations to have and actions to take, and it won't happen overnight, but it can happen. It can happen in partnership with Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism, in partnership with others working toward a dream, a dream that helps us escape the nightmare that still exists. It can happen. Another way, another world is possible with radical imagination, with a faithfulness to the heart of universalism. Another way and another world is possible. May it be so and amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.